The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Ah, very good morning. Welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. So, the Dow cracking 11 days in the green with its highest close since February 2022. Chinese and Hong Kong equities, meanwhile, jumping on the promise, no substance yet, but the promise of more economic support from Beijing. Interesting out of Adidas, they've improved its full-year loss forecast after surprisingly strong sales of its Yeezy shoes, this following its abandoned collaboration with rapper Kanye West. And bio slashes its full-year outlook for a second time as the German chemicals giant takes a 2.5 billion euro hit from a weak demand environment for its weed killer. Logitech ups its sales guidance, uh, meanwhile, despite posting a 16% decline in second quarter revenues, with the group's interim CEO warning of a challenging environment. And the chairman of uh, the Indian giant Hinduja Group backs uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's handling of the economy, telling CNBC in an exclusive interview he doesn't expect a downturn in the United Kingdom. The steps which the Prime Minister has taken are the right steps to correct the situation. I don't think there is going to be recession and any further inflation. Big views, big earnings and big analysis lined up on Squawk Box Europe. Welcome to the show. Let's start with a recap of the U.S. market action stateside. And as we pointed out in the headlines, we are looking at the Dow Jones closing at 35,411, which is 11-day gaining streak for the Dow Jones. It's longest gaining streak since the last six years. And what's important is that the index is just 4% short of its record high. We're seeing, of course, the S&P 500 also close higher with the Nasdaq giving it company though on uh, fractional gains, so to speak. I don't want to mark the month-to-date gains for the Dow Jones because that is what, I mean, this graph here reflects what we are talking about in terms of a steady rise in the index. Uh, remember, it's not tech-dominated and yet it has done well over the last 11 sessions, uh, which is what gets the market confused because uh, the bond markets are still signaling some worries about the economic underlying economic conditions, whereas the equity markets are holding very, very fine. I want to mark uh, what's happening with uh, Treasury yields and this gap, and I keep talking about it every single day because it's so, so important. The gap between the two-year as well as the 10-year now going at 105 basis points. So the market is extremely worried about uh, the economic environment, uh, recession risks. And what is very, very important to be noted is that on the 10-year side, the market is expecting going into 2024 that rates indeed will come down. How quickly? What's the glide path? On that front, the Fed has still not come out with its comments. Uh, of course, uh, I do also want to mark dollar crosses because remember, we are in a big central bank monetary policy week. We are looking at uh, the dollar index going at a 101. What does that mean for sterling dollar? 
uh, 1.28 coming in for the sterling where of course you're watching out for the BOE's decision on August the 3rd. Uh, Euro of course on the back of what the ECB does this week is, is also in focus and the expectation there is 25 basis points. Dollar yen has weakened 2% uh, over the last few sessions, 141 and counting and that's primarily predicated on the fact that the market is repricing the, uh, the indication coming in from the BOJ that policy would not be changed this time around. They won't rock the boat, so to speak. I want to mark uh, China markets and Hong Kong markets, just get you up to speed with what's happening uh, with uh, the markets there. And of course, it's, it was an all green screen across the board for mainland China markets as Beijing pledge to do more to help consumption, to help the property sector. We saw that play out even with the tech names. So the Hang Seng Tech Index did well. Every segment of the market actually performed. And some of the property names actually uh, clocked double-digit gains. So it was very, very good going for the markets there. All of those indices closing up in the green with the Hang Seng Index clocking in gains of about 3% plus. Uh, I want to mark those sectors uh, that really rallied in trade. So the MBI, the MPI as well as the tech sector gained 5%. Uh, in fact, that is one of our top stories that we will take forward and do a deep dive into right now, Steve. Thank you very much indeed. Look, let, let's be brutal for our, our viewers. There are two types of interview, intervention in this world. There's verbal intervention and then there's physical intervention. Sometimes verbal does the whole job. Uh, and physical isn't needed with the threat of that on the horizon. We see it a lot with central bankers, don't we? We saw it with Mario Draghi. I will do whatever it takes. I have a put uh, for the market. But what about what Beijing is offering? Well, the market likes the verbal at the moment, doesn't it? Hence those rallies that Tanvir was just talking about. Uh, Beijing has pledged to uh, boost stimulus, calling the country's post-pandemic economic recovery process tortuous. I think that's remarkably candid, actually, from them. Uh, China's Politburo met on Monday and said it would adjust and optimise property policies and focus on expanding domestic demand, according to local media. Sam... Uh, you've been looking at this and looking for the detail. And, and look, I think it's very interesting and very significant what the Politburo has said. But I haven't seen anything in terms of the detail of what it can do rather than what it can talk about as well. I don't know if you have as well. Very good morning to you, Steve. We've all been reading the Chinese tea leaves today, really picking apart that language in terms of what they meant. Certainly from this Politburo meeting, there was, as you mentioned, no major announcement of any stimulus, really nothing that was new from this meeting. Um, it was largely, though, about the tone, as you mentioned, and there was no expectation of any sort of big bank stimulus from that. As economists have been saying, this is really not the platform for it. If they wanted to make any sort of major announcement, they wouldn't have had to wait for a meeting. What this is really about is the communication and the language and setting the tone, uh, certainly in what is very important for a top-down system, uh, rather than the policy steps themselves. So this is about uh, thrashing out the direction and certainly uh, the messaging for the second half of the year is how they see the priorities moving forward. And so that is largely what investors appear to be encouraged by today. That is despite, as I said, no major announcement. Also, the fact that we did hear them warning uh, about um, certainly these challenges and these difficulties facing the economy. Some believe that they struck 
has struck a more sort of cautious tone rather than a positive one, particularly when talking about uh, the property sector and also um, when it came to uh, some other areas like local government debt. But the markets seem to be looking past that and very much feel encouraged by uh, what seems to be seen as a more pro-growth stance. Because if you look at the language, what we saw was that this line strengthening macro policy was back after uh, a bit of a hiatus earlier this year because of course uh, we do remember that there was this view that they uh, prematurely sort of uh, removed and withdrew some of that policy after the Q1 data looked pretty good. Um, There was also uh, some discussion around counter-cyclical which is different from cross-cyclical which uh, many say implies a more easing bias and then when you look at the language around the property sector they omitted this mantra which we've heard for years as part of the deleveraging campaign houses are for living in not for speculation now we don't need to get too excited about that because that has been omitted before however the markets are interpreting that as certainly continued support for this struggling sector right now and also coupled with the fact that they did emphasize that what they're going to do is focus very much on supply and demand and actually implement steps in what will be a timely way so we do need to of course read between the lines as well we're not expecting anything just yet this is no quick fix for this sector particularly um, this is a big drag on the economy right now but certainly the expectation in the market is that we could see more steps to come and one of the moves that uh, largely the market is expecting um, is some easing around some of these uh, home buyer restrictions in some cities so we've got to watch out for that um, the other thing that was interesting in terms of the language was around the local government debt this is widely being seen as part of the reason why we can't um, see the policymakers making any sort of big moves on stimulus because, of course, of the worries. You had the fiscal revenues out last week uh, telling a pretty dire story in terms of uh, how much these local governments are making or perhaps a lack of uh, from land sales, which they uh, generate a huge amount of income from. So they're struggling. And so um, there was some suggestion, certainly, of a more comprehensive solution to tackle that. So that was what was different. And the other thing that was very interesting was this greater emphasis for jobs and certainly making that a top priority and the language used uh, when talking about stabilizing the uh, employment sector was uh, language that we'd not really heard before which very much uh, highlights the the focus for them right now uh, to stabilize the the, the labor market at a time when we're seeing youth unemployment at a record high back to you but sam and that was absolutely brilliant analysis but and i've heard everything you said and just it seems to me the only decision is who takes on more debt. Because when I look at it, you're talking about, is it going to be the households? Is it going to be local government? Is it going to be central government? Is it going to be corporations? Or is it going to be a combination of all of the above? In which case, that is a tortuous mix because someone has to take on more debt in order to stimulate growth. And I don't see any good options here. Yeah, this is the major challenge moving forward. Uh, We've had a few clues in in terms of of how they're rolling out this stimulus and certainly sectors that they seem to be leaning on right now, void of any, um, I suppose, over-reliance on the property sector and also the old policy playbook of pump-priming the economy with the infrastructure projects, which, you know, is a huge burden, certainly when it comes to uh, spending at the local government level. Uh, So there's a big emphasis now really on um, consumption, um, trying to get people to buy more cars and 
things like electronics. They're also talking about um, trying to uh, develop these uh, urban areas to try to spur some of that demand and attract private investment. There was a big emphasis on that yesterday uh, with trying to help the private sector play a bigger role in all of this because um, really these private companies have been crying out for more clarity as to what role they're going to be able to play uh, moving forward in the second half and and growth sort of longer term after years of, of course, uh, really feeling the lingering impacts, the lasting effects of three years of zero COVID and that heavy-handed regulatory crackdown as well. So um, they say that this has really killed the animal spirit of entrepreneurs. So there seems to be more reassurance for the private sector now. And they're very much focusing their attention um, on these platform economies as well to try to absorb some of those, particularly younger people, into some of those jobs and really push um, when it comes to uh, innovation and the role of AI um, in technology moving forward. So that seems to be where they're shifting their focus uh, to now, uh, away from what has been a sort of more traditional sort of uh, infrastructure uh, boom and spending and and also in terms of uh, relying on uh, the property sector. Back to you. Super duper, Sam. Loving the coverage. Thank you very much indeed for that. Investors are awaiting three big central bank decisions this week. The Bank of Japan is expected to maintain its ultra-loose monetary policy on Friday, with markets not pricing any change to yield curve control or interest rates. Just amazing what the Japanese have managed to do compared with every single central bank pretty much on the planet. Uh, Elsewhere, the ECB is seen delivering another 25 basis point hike on Thursday in line with Christine Lagarde's comments last month that tightening in July was very likely. Investors will focus on any signals of what may follow in September amid diverging opinions from governing council members. And first up on Wednesday, the Fed is also expected to hike rates in what investors uh, believe, well, Forlornly, maybe, I'm just adding that in for myself, uh, could be the final rate increase of the uh, US central bank's hiking cycle. Investors are pricing an almost 99% chance of a 25 basis point hike from the Fed later this week, with the implied chance of a hold falling from over 28% early this month to zero now, according to the CME's Fed Watch tool. In September, there is an implied probability that the central bank will keep rates steady, with investors mostly expecting no further rate increases uh, from the Fed in this hiking cycle. Uh, Tanvir, um, there's so much to discuss and you can take it wherever you want. I'm just going to throw a bomb in this one as well. I think the Fed decision this time round is virtually irrelevant. Yeah. because I, I think the 25 is in the price. That's I think we want to know what's in the minutes, not the decision itself, and we're going to have to wait for those minutes. And also, the third most important thing is there's no updated SOP this time as well, summary, uh, mm-hmm. summary of economic projections, summary of economic, so yeah, SOE, right, yeah. SOAP. Sweep. Anyway, there's no economic projections update. There's no dot plot update. So there's I think until we see the minutes, we don't know the substance of this. So the decision itself, in the bag, would be extraordinary if there wasn't 25 base points. There aside, I think it's irrelevant for the market. I'm far more excited about the PCE numbers later in the week. And the labour market data. Because the last week, uh, with the jobless claims uh, coming in stronger than expected, I don't think they're out of the woods in terms of their own objective of, uh, you know, finding some more ease in uh, the labour market with wage inflation still being a worry. Uh, And the glide path, really, Steve, in terms of how inflation goes from here. Like you said, the PCE number would be important because that's the key economic indicator that they watch out for very closely. And what is 
uh, the outlook in terms of economic conditions for the second half of this year, given what's happening in China, given what's happening in the rest of the world, and when do they plan to actually cut rates? So this comes back to the point that you were making, I think, a few weeks ago about how long will they hold before they cut? I was, and it was, right. it was my information. Longer, but how, how much longer do we have to wait for that cut to happen? The fact is, uh, and this is, this is one of those great stats you can just throw out there, 11 months is the average period from hike to cut yeah. in the last 30 years. Now that ranges, and this, this is all stats that I've got imprinted in my brain for some reason, yeah. I don't know why. It ranges from five months to 18 months. So something pretty extraordinary would have to happen if we were to be, well, A, cutting in five months, and mm. B, um, extraordinarily less than the average. And given the fact, and I just want to add another layer into this as well, the market is pretty strong at the moment. Do you know we are only 4.2% off a record high for the Dow. We're only 5.5% off a record high for the S&P. There are bears out there, left, mm. right and centre, throwing in the towel. There are the 3300 to 3900 brigade on the S&P, which is now trading 4554, as you can see on the screen, who are just saying, we were wrong. Mm. So whilst you've got equity market bears becoming grudging balls or grudgingly enjoying this momentum rally as well. You've got the brokers such as Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley on Monday basically just saying, we were wrong. I mean, it's been painted as a, a mea culpa, but mea culpa means it's my fault. So uh, someone doesn't know their Latin. Um, but the fact of the matter is he's not saying mea culpa. He's saying we were wrong. That's for a little bit different from mea culpa. Um, but he said 2023 has been a story of higher valuations than we expected amid falling inflation and cost cutting as well. And herein lies the point for the market. You can't have it both ways. You're trying to have your cake and eat it as well. You can't have it that things are way better than we expected and then not get your rate uh, and, get, and get rate cuts at the same time. It's either one or t'other as well. So very interesting. The recession indicators are diminishing and I get that and I understand yeah. why they're diminishing in many ways. But then you can't have rate cuts if those uh, recession indicators are diminishing. And we still have a stunningly strong labour market, as you pointed out. Yeah, and also supply side challenges have not gone away. Steve, what happened last week with commodity prices, I'm a bit worried about how they can come back to haunt the Fed. But to your point about the markets, you know, here's another thing. For the CBOE VIX, we are at multi-year lows, right? So Extremely we have a 13 handle on the VIX. Yeah. Exactly, right? And, and also, just seven companies are making up for a majority of the gains that we're seeing on the index. And we keep talking about it pretty much day in, day out, right? 25% of the index, they're calling them the magnificent seven. So Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, Alphabet and Meta together are $11 trillion, which is 50% of the economy. So this market is a bit skewed. And we'll have to see how things play out on that front. But that yeah, that needs to be taken on board as indeed. well. Indeed. There has been the market a, vulnerable. There has been a bit more breadth in the market. There's no doubt about it. The, the, the names you mentioned, the seven to ten top names, they have dominated. But there has been a little bit, my, some of my correspondents point out, the breadth has picked up a little bit. It has. Uh, for instance, the moves we've been seeing on the transports, on the Russell 2K, other indexes which don't have the same uh, preponderance towards those big tech names, actually have been making some good ground. So very interesting, has widened out a bit. People are looking for other stocks that don't have the the same kind of uh, premium in terms of their valuation as well. So it's picked up a little bit as well. But but again, your, your point is well made as well. It's been very concentrated and yeah. which makes it even more exciting about the focus. And I know that the team want to look at this a little bit later on <laughs> about the big names we've got, such as Alphabet, 
uh, Microsoft reporting in the next 24 hours. Oh, absolutely, and NVIDIA down the road. Uh, so, yeah, and just adding to that little point that you made about the divergence in the market, the Russell 2000 is actually 20% off its record high. So you can see how, how big the gap is versus the Dow as well as the main indices. Absolutely. So, okay, let's move on. <laughs> we can keep talking about this uh, for the rest of the show. But for now, let's focus on JP Morgan's chief global market strategist call, saying that the bank is staying bearish on stocks, advising investors uh, to focus on one key asset class instead. You can find out more on our subscription service, CNBC Pro, about that call. Scan the QR code on your screen now to find out more. Still ahead on Squawk Box, Adidas uh, customers sprint to snap up Yeezy sneakers despite the company severing ties with rapper Kanye West. Uh, Arbele does a deep dive into the company's fuller outlook just ahead. Plus, the first key test of big tech names this earnings season, Microsoft and Alphabet report a second quarter results. Later today, we'll dig into the expectations for the sector. And Dosan Systemes uh, reaffirms its uh, guidance on the back of better software revenue. CEO Bernard Charles uh, joins us at the bottom of the hour with more on that story. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. We've all learned a lot about the defense industry, tragically, since February the 24th last year. We've learned how interwoven traditional forms of military are combined with, of course, cyber security as well. Uh, and, and the war that's being waged in both military hardware and indeed in software as well. And, and I think with that in mind, it is incredibly apt, the move that Thales has made today, um, the French Aerospace Stroke Defence Group has had an absolutely extraordinary rally since uh, October uh, of 2020, rallying from 55 euros to the current level of 132 euros. More of a moderate gain this year, up 10%. But um, very, very interesting looking at the projection of companies and the broader defence industry uh, since the, the start of the tragedy that is the Ukraine-Russia war. With that in mind, um, Thales is actually looking to bolster its um, cyber security uh, division at the moment, buying a US cyber security company called Imperva in a $3.6 billion deal. Now that is based on an enterprise value. Um, they're buying it from Toma Bravo, which is a software investor. And I think that's extraordinary. The, the interweaving between software, cyber security, and indeed the defense industry. I'll give you a little bit more detail. I don't need to go on too much about this one. They're going to create a world-class global cyber security leader, so says Thales, occurring this company from Toma Bravo. Um, it will generate more than 2.4 billion euros in revenues uh, with this acquisition. Now, that's the broader Thales so, uh, cybersecurity business. Transaction values, I mentioned, 3.6 billion uh, euros, will result in a $110 million 
uh, of run rate cost and revenue synergies uh, result in significant medium-term adjusted EPS accretion. And I'll just give you one more line on this one as well. Um, new targets have been set now for its digital identity and security unit, including 2024 to 2027 organic sales growth of up 6 to up 7% as well. So once again, a, a visual manifestation of the importance of cybersecurity uh, in the defense industry going forward. Tamvia. Thanks very much for that, uh, Steve. Uh, UBS, meanwhile, will pay nearly $400 million in fines uh, to American and British regulators over Credit Suisse's dealings uh, with Archegos uh, Capital Management. The combined Swiss bank will pay $269 million to the Federal Reserve and $119 million, $119 million uh, to the Bank of England to settle misconduct by Credit Suisse. UBS has pledged to implement, quote, operational and risk management discipline after finalizing the takeover of its rival last month. I want to quickly recap some of our other stories. The big earnings that we are tracking in this region, uh, Bayer has downgraded its full-year forecast, announcing a 2.5 billion euro write-down as demand falls for its Jaffos state-based weed killers. The German chemicals giant cut its EBITDA outlook for 2023 to between 11.3 and 11.8 billion euros. That's down from 12.5 billion euros previously forecast. Meanwhile, Adidas will see smaller than expected losses this year as demand for Yeezy trainers remains unexpectedly strong with orders coming in for the 4 million pairs of unsold shoes. The German sportswear giant has confirmed a potential write-off of the remaining Yeezy inventory is now down 400 million euros, while operating losses are expected to come in at 450 million euros for the full year. Adidas ended its highly profitable partnership with rapper Kanye West, remember, last autumn following his anti-Semitic comments. Okay, Arabile Gumede joins us with the latest on that story to take it forward. Arabile, good to see you. Tadvi, are you a, are you a sneakerhead? No. <laughs> no? Steve? I wear vast amounts of trainers. I, I can imagine so. So when the sale came out then earlier this year, you must have thought, I'm going to cash in on these no, sneakers, No, because right? I wouldn't touch the, bra the Yeezy with a barge pole after his anti-Semitic <laughs> comments. Yeah. And I mean that that's exactly earnestly it. as well. Yeah. So I'm absolutely amazed that, uh, look, people are putting the fashion and perhaps the fact that they are a limited edition before... Um, Dare I say, incredibly unsavory comments and from this man. And this is at 268 euros a pair for the 500 utility black, which is on average seen as the most popular one. Yeah, so I think the average price, high price. I, I did a little bit of basic math, but I think we're talking some in the region of 127 bucks per pair, per average pair of Yeezys. Yeah, that's I, I mean, exactly look, good it. for Adidas, good for the charities, the charities which fight racism and anti-Semitism globally as well. Yeah. But I'm, I'm amazed, I guess, yeah. uh, who's buying these trainers. Oh, no, absolutely. And so the demographic is seen to be much younger. And, and, and those that are actually in their teens uh, is what is assumed to, to have been uh, part of a lot of these sales at this point in time. So, indeed, more than 500 million euros worth of Yeezy trainers have actually been sold in an online sale uh, that they put forward then in around uh, May and June earlier this year. Uh, dramatically reducing the risk that the group would have to write off uh, further funds, of course, that they had lost around $440 million uh, as well earlier this year or in their first quarter, uh, having 
ended the line, of course, and ended their, terminated their contract with Kanye West in May this year. The company announcing that it would try to sell that because otherwise it would have had to write off that $500 million. Uh, they have noted that they will donate a significant portion uh, of uh, the proceeds from this sale. But let's remember that they still would like to pay royalties to Kanye as well as meet costs that are stemming from the end of this partnership, including the fact that they had to lose quite a few uh, staff in the process. Uh, Fifteen different Yeezys were on sale, as I noted. And having first joined forces back in 2015, by last year, Yeezys were generating 1.7 billion euros in sales or around 700 million euros in profit. So it certainly was profitable. Um, but uh, now, seemingly, uh, the end of it is near. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.